Thank you, Justin, for your kind words. Am I on? We're good. All right, cool. Well, hey, it's a pleasure to be with you all this morning again. Uh, As Justin said, my name is Ben, my beautiful wife, Neva. She's up here, and if we uh, have known you in the past or we don't know you yet, we'd love to meet you after service, so please come say hi. Uh, Everyone here is going to need their Bible. We'll be preaching from the Bible this morning, as Sojourn does every week, so go ahead and pull out uh, your Bible or your app, whatever it is that you're using. If you're visiting us this morning, uh, maybe you don't own a Bible yourself or forgot it at home, you can raise your hand, and an usher will come by and give you a Bible. And uh, like I said, if you don't own a Bible, that's actually Sojourn's gift to you, and so you can take that home and read it. Well, this morning, as you're, uh, you're taking your Bible out, you can go ahead and begin flipping it open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. And as you're flipping there, I want to take a moment to remind us of exactly what it is that we are reading. We are reading this morning, we find ourselves in what is called a historical narrative. In particular, we're in a gospel letter. It's one of four Gospels written by Matthew. And every Gospel writer, as they're writing out their story, their narrative, they have a particular bent, a particular perspective, a particular uh, focused item that they want you to see, you the reader, you the audience, that they want you to get out of their story. And of particular interest to Matthew is the kingdom of God, the coming of the King in Jesus the Messiah. And so Sojourn's been preaching out of the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks. And the Sermon on the Mount is sort of one of the high points in the Gospel of Matthew where we're learning about what the kingdom of God is, what it looks like, what kind of king Jesus is and what kind of kingdom he rules over. What do the citizens of this kingdom look like? It's a message that was attractive to the disenfranchised, the poor, the sick and the needy and the abused. And it was one that offended religious elites and governing rulers. But no matter what side of the aisle anyone found themselves on, they couldn't help but be drawn to this traveling preacher from Nazareth. Matthew tells us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that both the crowds and the disciples were gathered to hear this sermon. Both those who were curious about about Jesus' message, both those who had heard about him, maybe those who were angered by him, but also those who had already committed to following Christ. And so imagine this diverse crowd of people gathered before him on this cliff face. Up front, you probably had the disciples who had already made this commitment to follow Christ, but were still a little bit naive because they hadn't yet considered the cost of what it was going to take to follow him. Maybe behind them over here, you would have a group of Sadducees who had their scrolls open and they were making sure that everything Jesus said lined up with their interpretation of the Torah. Over here, probably some families from the region who they didn't know enough about Jesus yet, but they had heard that he could perform miracles and they were just hoping that he would pass by and touch their sick child or their sick relative. In the back, Uh, in in the back was probably the group of the Pharisees, and they're sort of in the back sort of making Pharisee face. You know, it's like a mix of stink eye and grumpy cat. And uh, they're really just there hoping to trap Jesus in his own words. In the middle, maybe of all these groups of people, you have some Roman guards who are walking through trying to keep the peace. And then in the very back, maybe outside the windows, peering in, you would have the Samaritans, maybe even a few lepers mixed in, the outcasts, 
who were just hoping that this Jesus would have something that might apply to them. And in the middle of this crowd, they've been, they've been learning about the kingdom of God, what this kingdom looks like, who the citizens of this kingdom are. And now as Jesus is transitioning into the end of his sermon, they hear these words from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree, it bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and it is thrown into the fire. Hmm. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, last week, Justin preached a message on verses 13 and 14, immediately preceding this passage. And what we learned there was that the, really the teaching component of the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, sort of the description of what the kingdom is going to look like, that part has passed. And now Jesus is transitioning as he's nearing the end of his sermon into a series of four warnings. Last week, we heard the first warning. This week, we have the next two warnings, and they deal with this subject of false prophets. And so that's what we're sort of going to be talking about this morning, this idea of false prophets. And we're going to be asking and answering four questions. And so if you're a note taker, you can write these down. The four questions we'll be answering this morning are, what are false prophets? Number two, why does this warning matter so much to us? Number three, who are they? And finally, how do we resolve this problem? So what are they? Why does this matter so much to us? Who are they? And how do we resolve the problem? So jump back with me here as we answer this first question. What are false prophets? Go back to verse 15 here. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Now, pause there. Remember, Jesus isn't associated with any other religious group of his day. He's alone, and he's standing up here on this cliff face. He's not backed up by the Pharisees, not by the Sadducees, not by the scribes. He's all alone, and he's calling out false prophets. This would be striking to people. They'd be whispering amongst themselves, who is this guy? He has the authority to call out false prophets? Who does he think he is? 
Now, if we want to know what is meant by this term false prophets, we should be uh, familiar with uh, the characteristics people would have associated with them at this time. And so I want to just point out a couple, two, two characteristics that the people would have been familiar with at this time, would have associated with this term false prophets. We find them in the Old Testament. And the first characteristic we find in places like Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, we read that the Lord is calling out false prophets, and they're, they're essentially those who they claim to speak for God. They claim to have a word from the Lord when they have actually not been appointed to speak for God. They have no word to speak from the Lord. So it's easy enough right? A false prophet is someone who claims to be a prophet, but they're not. That's the first characteristic people would have known. The second thing people would have known is, and we find it in places like Jeremiah chapter 6, where there the Lord is rebuking false prophets. He says, you have dealt falsely with my people, and you have said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, false prophets, they deceive people into false assurance of their faith. They deceive them into a life of complacency and ease. And this is fitting then if we come back to Matthew chapter 7 because remember we find this warning about false prophets immediately after Jesus warns about the narrow difficult path that leads to life or the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. You see it is the role of the false prophet to usher us into that wide and easy path. And so Jesus takes us a step further. He says, not only are they claiming to speak for God when they haven't been appointed to do so, not only do they lull you into false assurance of your faith, but he says they're deceptive. They're intentionally deceptive. He said they might look like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They have insatiable appetites looking for people to devour, to fit their own agendas, to submit to their own opinions and their own ideas. You see, what Jesus is warning us of is not the fact that false prophets are like obviously heretical, that they're obviously living this horrendous lifestyle, but no, he says it's their subtlety, their deception that makes them so dangerous. And I think that raises a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? I think all of us, we want to be able to say that, oh, this person, we want to see them from a distance and, and, and know that they're dangerous, so just to be able to see them and say, oh, they're false. But Jesus is saying that's not the case. So that's a bit of a problem. What, what, are we, maybe, what, what can we do to maybe start detecting or learn for ourselves what false prophets look like today? And so before we answer the second question, I want to give a quick couple points of application, maybe how we together can start thinking through what a false prophet might look like. The first uh, point of application is this. You know, uh, I, think, I think often we can detect false prophets and false teaching and false teachers not so much by what they do say, but by what they do not say, right? We know that uh, we've, we've seen already that false prophets, they're deceptive. And we know that their message is one of false assurance, of ease, of comfort. And so what that tells us is then false prophets today on the surface will probably often sound very Christian. And we'll hear things about God's love, or maybe we'll even hear about Christ dying for us. But you know, we probably won't hear about why, we probably won't hear about our sin. We probably won't hear about our need for someone else's righteousness. We probably won't hear that a call to follow Christ is a call to die to self and a a life of difficulty. We won't hear that because that's not the role of the false prophet. 
And so I think the call for us today is to be able to test the things that we hear, the things that people recommend to us to listen to or to read, to be able to test it and say, does this line up with the whole of the Christian truth? Or is it just a half-truth? Is it half-Christianity? See, because a half-Christianity is no Christianity at all. So that's maybe the first thing that we can begin to think through. The second thing I think we can think through is uh, today, I think there are many people who claim to be preachers or teachers or prophets who are unfortunately more influenced by their agenda and their opinions and their soapboxes than they are by the gospel and the word of God. And so we hear that in what comes out. And, and so we hear maybe recently in the political cycle, we heard uh, from preachers and teachers who were more influenced by their political views than they were by the gospel and the word of God. Maybe we hear about people who are more influenced by their claims to social justice than they are by the gospel and, word of, and the word of God. Or maybe a popular one that we're all familiar with is those who are more influenced by their view of the end times than they are by the gospel or the word of God. And so what tends to happen then for, for individuals who become influenced in that way, that their message is calling congregations to submit to them, to submit to their agenda, rather than to Christ and his lordship. So I think those are two things that we can begin to maybe apply in our life as we want to seek to beware of false prophets. Now, as a, one more quick word um, before I move on to the second question, you know, there's a lot of gifts in this life that we take for granted, right? I think Thanksgiving it, this past week is a time where we try to recall things and, and be thankful for things that we take for granted. I hope one of the gifts that you do not take for granted is the man who's been called to preach and to teach for this church. You know, um, I don't listen to Sojourn sermons that much anymore, uh, but something I do know, that if I were to go and listen to a Sojourn sermon every week, so I'll hear a few things. One, I'm going to hear the text faithfully preached and taught. Two, I'll hear the gospel. And three, I know that Justin knows how to get out of the way and allow this book to govern his message and not himself. And friends, I think that's a gift. It's a gift, and I hope you thank him for that regularly. Now, we've answered the question, what are false prophets? The second question I want to answer is, why does this warning matter so much to us? Why should we care so much about this warning that Jesus has for us? Well, I want to offer us three reasons that I think we find in the text. Three reasons why we should heed this warning so carefully. And the first two warnings, or the first two reasons, are sort of connected, so I'll answer them in turn. And, and those reasons are these. Um, at best, at best, I think we can say that false prophets are an obstacle to our faith. But at worst, at worst, they lead to outright wickedness and evil, not only for themselves, but for all who follow them. At best, they're an obstacle. At worst, they lead to evil and wickedness. You know, so we've already said that false prophets are deceptive, that they give us false assurance and lead us into a life of complacency and ease, that they would usher us into the wide and easy path that leads to destruction. 
So I think that necessarily means that their message, it clouds our vision, it clouds our minds, it clouds our hearts from finding and staying on the narrow path that leads to life. It's an obstacle. It's an obstacle not only for us, it's an obstacle to other people even coming to faith or finding the kingdom. And I think we all, I think we all know this is the case. Um, we see it all the time. Recently, uh, over the last several months, I've been hanging out with a couple uh, skeptic and atheist groups that meet in Fairfax, and we meet a few times a month in different restaurants or uh, in different people's homes, and it's a really been a great opportunity for me uh, to learn and to grow, and uh, I've learned a lot. You know, I've learned a lot from people who obviously don't share my perspective on life, and I hope they've learned from me, and uh, I hope they've learned about Christianity and our faith. Um, but we've had a lot of great conversations, you know, and so one of the conversations that we had recently, uh, we were all sitting around a table at Gyra, the coffee shop in Centerville, about 10 of us, and the leader of the group, he asked this question, and it's kind of a mouthful, and so don't let it shock you because it was, uh, sort of caught me off guard when I first heard it, but he asked this question. He said, what are your thoughts on the evolution of the feeling of the presence of God? So let me repeat that so you can all try and put that together in your head. He said, what are your thoughts on the evolution of the feelings of the presence of God? And I'm, I'm sitting there, right? I'm like, um, okay, I have thoughts on evolution. I have thoughts on feelings. I don't like them. And I have thoughts on the presence of God, but I was trying to put it all together. And so luckily I was at the end of the table and, and I, I got to answer last. Um, but what, what surprised me was that after he answer, asked the question, nobody really answered it. You know, everyone has said we sort of went around and everyone used it as an opportunity to sort of uh, air their grievances with a bad experience they've had in the church, with some whack teaching they've heard or with some bad experience they've had from a false teacher or a false church. And I found that it was not necessarily the Christian faith or the gospel they were rejecting in that moment, but it was something that they'd heard that was false, but it has now become their perception of what was true. Don't we all have experiences with this? How many times in our workplaces do we talk to coworkers and they're telling us why they aren't Christian and it's something, you're just like, that's not even Christianity, what you're rejecting, you know? And so we see that at best, these false teachings of false prophets can be an obstacle, but at worst, they lead to wickedness. Jesus here in this passage in verses 15 to 20, he's He's using this illustration of these fruit trees. He says, a healthy tree bears good fruit and a diseased tree bears bad fruit. What exactly is the difference between these two kinds of fruit? Well, we should keep in mind the fact that this is actually, this is not the first time in Matthew's gospel where this tree imagery is being used. In fact, if we go back to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist, he uses the same image. And what he says, he gives us a little bit more detail. He says, bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's the same image. And here Jesus is using it and he says, a healthy tree bears this good fruit. This good fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Or in other words, it's good fruit that is in keeping with a renewed heart. It's good fruit that's in keeping with a life that has been changed by Christ. Or maybe something we're more familiar with, it's the spiritual fruit that Paul lays out for us in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, etc. It's fruit that flows 
from a life that has been changed by the gospel. And so then, if that's the good fruit, the bad fruit, you know, Jesus is using this word for a diseased tree. So let's do a little bit of a word study here for a moment. He says diseased tree, which that's a fine word, but we need to keep in mind that what he is not talking about here is an external disease. It's not like a fungus growing on a tree that we can see from a distance. Because remember, false prophets are deceptive. We can't just see them with our eyes. The image here, say, is like an orchard of trees. You can't tell the healthy and the diseased ones just with your eyes. This word for diseased, it, it, it means a, an inward corruption. So what he's saying is it's a person who has a moral, inward, soul disease. Something has gone wrong in here. And then he says what flows out of this diseased heart is bad fruit. And again, so let's look at this word, bad, here. The word that is used, that Matthew uses here, is poneru. And everywhere else in our Bibles, except for this passage, poneru is the word where we get evil or wickedness from. It, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus says, deliver us from evil, the same word. What we're talking about here is evil fruit. It's wickedness. It's an inward disease that leads to evil and wicked behavior. Just another example of this, we already said, you know, in Jeremiah chapter 6, the Lord is rebuking these false prophets for their message of complacency and ease. But then we find in Jeremiah chapter 7 that Jeremiah comes to the people and he's rebuking the people of Israel because the out of their deception has come all sorts of atrocities and wickedness and abominations against the Lord. The one always leads to the other. The message of the false prophet always leads to evil and wickedness, not only for themselves, but also for all who follow them. And so, at best, we can say they're an obstacle. At worst, evil and wickedness flow as a result But there's a third reason that I think we find in this text. If we look, you know, Jesus has used all this time in the previous chapters. He's talking about the kingdom of God, what it looks like. And then at the very end of his sermon, he says, beware. Beware of false prophets. The fact that he saves this for a last should tell us how important it is. But unfortunately, I think there are a lot of people in our churches, a lot of people in this room, that don't take this warning seriously enough. You know, um, and, I, and I get it because I think sort of the creed of our culture is one of, you know, love and tolerance and equality. It's supposed to be a judgment-free zone. And, and those are all good things. But often, though, if we buy into that, we no longer want to separate from people that maybe we should separate from. We no longer want to be willing to call out someone for being wrong. And my heart breaks on this reason in particular because I know that it's it's my generation of young people. It's the millennials who are particularly influenced in this way. You know, there's a lot of research today that's being done, and, and some of it's good, some of it's bad. Uh, Blogs, books, all, all kinds of stuff that's being written trying to answer this question you know, why are millennials leaving the church? Why are young Christians leaving the church? And uh, one, I think the best book that's been written on this is a book called You Lost Me. Um, It's written by a couple of authors. 
And uh, the book is uh, sort of unpacking some studies and research that was done by the Barna Group, trying to answer this question, why are young Christians leaving the faith? And uh, one of the most important things I think that they found, and I think we maybe all know this already, but one of the things they found was that young Christians are leaving the faith because they perceive Christianity to be too exclusive. And millennials, we don't like being exclusive. We like to find areas of commonality, of common ground, to come together to solve problems. We don't like to find differences that might lead to conflict. The authors of this book, they, they call us the great agreement generation. And you know, I, I really think, I'm not trying to knock millennials here. You know, first of all, I am a millennial. Second of all, I think this is a huge strength of ours. I think it's a huge strength because it gives me great hope that maybe, just maybe, we'll be the generation who will bring unity and restoration and wholeness to a church that has too often been marked by hostility and division. That's my hope for us. But if that's our strength, I think our weakness is passages like this are in our blind spots. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to call someone out for being wrong. And I think that puts us in a very especially dangerous place. And so friends, if that's you, if maybe you haven't given this kind of warning the proper weight, I want to ask you to reconsider this morning that there's a reason why Jesus leaves this warning for the end of his sermon because it's really important. And there always have been false prophets, always will be false prophets until the king returns, and we need to be able to discern them, to detect them, to call them out, to warn other people of them and their teaching. And so I think, friends, this warning is very important to us, and it really should matter. So, what are false prophets? We've answered that. Why does this warning matter to us? I think we've made the case why this is important, but that raises the question— who are these false prophets? Who are they? I want to back up and I want to read from this chapter, chapter 7, verses 19 to 21. I want to read these again. Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, again, feel the weight of this. Put yourself back in that crowd. Jesus has just finished talking about these false prophets what impression do you think this made on people? If I had to guess, at this point, I bet you could have heard a pin drop in the crowd. Who is he talking about? Who, who does this guy think he is to have this kind of authority? Who? Who, who, are these, who are these false prophets that he is calling out right now? But then he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, slow down, Jesus. Who are we talking about here? I thought we were talking about false prophets, but now you're saying to me, 
Not every tree. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I, I imagine when I was, I was writing this, I imagined, uh, you know, I see the group of disciples up here in the front and, and Peter's sort of in the middle of them and he's sort of elbowing his way to get to the front of the disciples and saying, uh, Lord, Lord, I'll always be there. I'll be by your side the whole time, man. I got you. Might not be the case, um, but I think, it, I think it illustrates the point, doesn't it? Here in verse 21, we find something of a repetition of the warning that came in verse 15 to 20. But Jesus takes it to the next level because he says, false prophets are dangerous, but not as dangerous as your false hearts. You see, I think who are these false prophets is really the wrong question so long as we are not first willing to answer It's our own hearts that are deceitful above all else. It's my heart that is an obstacle to my faith. It's my heart that can lead to wickedness in my life and potentially for others who might follow suit. I think it's an exhortation to self-examination. And friends, it's a solemn one. It's a solemn one. You know, I said earlier uh, that some of us may maybe underemphasize this warning of false prophets. Maybe we sort of put it in our blind spot. We don't think about it enough. And if that's the case, I also think there are those of us who we overemphasize warnings like this to the point that false prophets and, and thinking about them or talking about them become a distraction for our own lives that become a distraction for us even looking at ourselves and saying, what about my life? What about my faith? What about my heart? This is the camp that I think I often fall into, and, and, I, and I know the fruit of this, for me at least, tends to be a very pharisaical kind of religion. Um, you know, I think people like me, we, we, we tend to think that we have all the right theology, all the right beliefs. We have the right way of doing things. We know what it means to be faithful to the Lord. And somehow it's become our job to police other churches and other Christians on their faithfulness. It's, it's lunacy when you say it out loud. But which one of us cannot say that we're not guilty of having that disposition towards another brother or sister? Which one of us cannot say that we are not tempted by a comfortable and easy faith? Which one of us cannot say that we have never used our words or our deeds to trick and deceive people into thinking that we're better than we actually are? You see, something has gone wrong inside of us. There's a disease of the soul in me, first and foremost. It leads me astray. It gives me false assurance, false evidences of my faith. And Jesus, he he unpacks what these false evidences and false assurances can look like. In verse 22, he says, you know, you might prophesy in my name. You might cast out demons in my name. You might perform many mighty works in my name. 
In other words, he says it's entirely possible to have a profession of faith, to be baptized, to grow up in a Christian home, to go to a Christian university, to be on staff with a Christian ministry, to serve in the church every week, to adopt children, to go into ministry, to go overseas for mission trips, and the whole time be altogether lost. What he says to us this morning is, that's entirely a possibility for each and every one of us. The warning, friends, is for us to be honest with ourselves, to examine our own hearts, our own faith. Um, there's something that I try to be pretty open about, and that is uh, I try to be pretty open and honest about the fact that uh, I struggle with depression, or you could say a depressive mood, or maybe a depressive disposition on life. And uh, the reason why I try to be pretty open about that, at least, at least one of those reasons, is because conservative estimates say that um, at least 20% of people in this room struggle with depression. I would say it's probably more like 40 to 50% if people were willing to be open about it. And so I think, you know, if there's going to be a safe place in our culture to talk about things like depression, it needs to start here in the church. And so I like to get it out there and make it a, you know, a, a, a conversation piece for people. And um, I've learned a lot through, you know, the last few years struggling through this. Uh, one of the things that I've learned is that depression, my depression, it isn't, it isn't always caused by sin. You know, sometimes it is, a lot of times it is, but it isn't always. Um, but whether or not the cause itself is sinful, my depression, my depression, my depressive moods, they are always um, fertile soil for other sins to grow. You know, in particular, the sins of bitterness and envy and jealousy and a cold, hard-heartedness that makes me slow to repentance and faith. It's to my shame that it's often my wife who bears the brunt of that. Um, you know, and it would be easy for me to despair. It would be easy for me to maybe even doubt my salvation uh, during those seasons. Unless it was for the fact that I could look back on a pattern in my life where the Lord is working out faith and repentance in my heart. Sometimes it takes days, sometimes weeks, maybe even months longer than it should. But I can look back on what he's done in my life. I can see him bearing much spiritual fruit in my life, that, that I'm growing in what it means to love him and love others, that I'm growing in what it means to have joy for other people or joy in difficult circumstances. And I can only pray that he would continue to do that good work in me. But I also know that I can't be passive. I have to be very active in this fight. And what that means is that sometimes I need to take out my heart and have something of a violent self-examination with the Lord and his word and say, Lord, am I changing? Are you doing something in my life? Because I think I've already proven I can't do it. Lord, are, are, are you making me more like your son? I want to be more. I don't want this diseased, monstrous heart inside of me anymore. I have to be honest with myself. And I think, I think one of the marks of a Christian is a regular, intense, honest self-examination. 
It's a ripping open of our chest cavity and pulling out this diseased monster that beats inside of our chest and laying it before the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't want this anymore. I want to be holy and spiritual and more beautiful like your son. Lord, will you, will you bear good fruit in my life? Will you forgive me of my sins? Will you make me more like a citizen of your kingdom? That's who I want to be, Father. I think that needs to be a regular pattern in our lives. Friends, I think the call for us this morning is just to be honest. To be honest with ourselves. Where are we deceived? Where have we gone astray? Where have we relied on false evidences and false assurances of our faith? And maybe if you're here and and you've professed Christ, whether it's for a day or a year or your whole life, as long as you can remember, but maybe you're realizing this isn't a habit for you, or you maybe even never had that moment with the Lord where you've sat down and asked him to examine you. You don't have to wait to do that. You can do that today. And my encouragement to you is that when Justin comes up to give the supper, that you would come and take the bread and take the cup and go back to your seat and say, Lord, I want to be like you. Will you do this work in my life? Help me bear good fruit. Friends, let's just be honest with ourselves today. Let's be honest with ourselves. Finally, it sort of raises a bit of a tension, doesn't it? It raises some tension for us. How do, we, how do we now resolve this tension, this problem that has arisen? Because if we're being honest, we look at this text and we see, uh, okay, so there's false prophets who are going to lead me astray. Uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. And not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not very, that's not very assuring. I think many people would say that verses 21 to 23 are probably the scariest text in the Bible. What am I supposed to do with this? Do I examine myself out of fear? What do we do? I think uh, as I was preparing this message this week, uh, what the Lord impressed on my heart the most was just how fickle my heart must be. You know? Like how fickle must my heart and my love for God, how fickle must it be? One author, I think he said it best. He said, uh, he said, Christ's love for us is like the sun. It's always constant. It's always the same. It's always present in our lives. Our love for him is like the moon. Sometimes it's full. Sometimes it's a thin crescent. What are we supposed to do with that? Look with me at verse 23. He says, And then on that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think the image that Jesus is giving here, verses 22 and 23, is someone, 
you know, it's sort of like a job application. I think many of us have probably applied for jobs and, and worked at some point in here. And, um, and you know what it's like when you're applying for a job. You get your resume together, and everyone always embellishes a little bit. Uh, you know, you put your best experiences and leave out uh, things that you've gotten wrong, right? Uh, you pamper it up so that it's your accomplishments and what you've done on your resume to give you the nice, best presentation of yourself. And then you make it to the interview, and what do you do in the interview? You're always trying to name drop people, right? Like, oh, um, that manager in accounting, uh, yeah, I know them. They, they would know I have good work. Uh, the vice president, yeah, she's one of my references. Did you know that? We're always trying to make ourselves look good. Is it any different when it comes to matters of our faith? But Jesus says, see, this is where, again, in his kingdom, is completely flipped on its head. Everything that we think the way it should go is flipped on its head. Jesus says, I don't care about your resume. You think you can just name drop me and get into heaven as if Christianity is just a get out of hell free card? No. I never knew you. And see, friends, this is what makes Christianity so unique. Christianity is most certainly not about our resume and what we've done and our accomplishments. It's not even about who we know, but rather, it's all about who we're known by. Friends, Jesus is the one who walked down the narrow path but faced the consequence of the wide path for our sake. He became the tree that was cut down and thrown into the fire. He quite actually became lawlessness for our sakes so that we could have his obedience and righteousness. And now he has been raised to sit at the right hand of the Father, and he now intercedes for us daily on our behalf. And he says, Father, these are my brothers. These are my sisters. I know them and I love them. That's the heart of the Christian faith. Not that we came to the Lord first, not that we knew him first, but that first and foremost, we were known by him and loved by him. And everything else that we do flows out of a life that has been changed by that simple truth. Friends, does that bring you comfort this morning? To know that it's not about you and what you've done but principally about the fact that you are known and loved by Christ. That is what it means to be a Christian. And you see, that then is where we find the assurance not to examine ourselves in fear, but in a sober but loving assurance that I can do this, I can examine myself, I can be honest about my sins before the Lord, and his love for me does not change, not one bit Friends, does that bring you comfort this morning? You see, every Christian that has ever been known by Christ wants to be more like Christ. And so I hope this morning that you walk away from here perhaps being challenged to, out of your assurance of your faith, not to be lulled into complacency and ease, but instead motivated to look at yourself and be honest before the Lord and desire to change even more, to become more like Christ and to become more like a citizen of his kingdom. But now as we close, I want to say a quick word to those of you who are here 
Maybe you're not a Christian. Uh, maybe you've been checking out this church for a while. It's your first week. You're in town visiting friends for Thanksgiving. First of all, uh, happy you're here and happy that you're considering what we have to say this morning. I think what you've heard out of this text this morning is that a part of Christianity is a willingness for followers of Christ to be honest, to be open, to recognize where we've gone astray and where we've been self-deceived. But, you know, I recognize uh, there's a sentiment, and I think it was captured by one, one man, uh, G.K. Chesterton. He's a, he was a Catholic theologian. I think he said this best. He said, often uh, it is Christians that are an obstacle to other people becoming Christians. You know, and, I, and I think we get that because uh, we hear this a lot in our society that Christians are hypocrites. You know, maybe you might even say to yourself, I'd become a Christian if it wasn't for the Christians. You know, I get that. Um, yeah, we're hypocrites. We get it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong more often than we get it right. So yeah, we're hypocrites. But you know, so are you. And I don't say that to single anybody out. I think if we all are honest with ourselves, we're all self-deceived. We're all addicted to self. We all give in to uh, this heart that fools us into thinking that we're better than we actually are. And if you recognize that this morning then isn't it the case that you need something outside of yourself to help you see just how self-deceived you actually are? So my encouragement to you this morning is to go back and read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read through it and say, and, and honestly ask yourself, is not this a kingdom that I want to belong to? And then if that's the case, maybe that means you were meant to follow that kind of king. You see, friends, all of us, all of us, either in this life or the next, will meet Christ. In this life, we have the opportunity to meet him in grace and in love. But if we wait until the next, the only thing we will hear is away, away. But my prayer this morning is that nobody in this room will hear those words but instead that all of us on that day we will hear enter into the joy of your master. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, this text is tough. It is a solemn and sober exhortation for us to be honest with ourselves. To be honest with ourselves before you and before your word. To acknowledge that first and foremost, we are deceived. That we rely too often on false evidences and false assurances of our faith and not the fact that we are simply known and loved by you. So Lord, this morning my prayer is for everyone in this room, that they would recognize just how loved and known by you they are. That 
even though this text is hard, that there is no reason to fear because it's not about us. It's about what Christ has done for us on our behalf. And Lord, as we continue our time of worship, as we leave here today, encourage us by your Spirit to find our assurance not in us, not in our profession, but in your profession of us and how much you love us. Oh Lord, help us to love you more and make our love for you more full, more real, more tangible, more constant, and more beautiful. And so Lord, we praise you now and we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.